Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, don't let others destroy your freedom. And I want to read a lengthy passage, uh, chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, and then if you want to find uh, Acts chapter 15, and in the first part of this message, we're going to refer back to Acts 15 for a few moments uh, for some verses there, but Galatians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of the high reputation What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he was effectually working for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised and effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles." And recognized the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. You always wondered where that came from. That's where it came from. The right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So let's look at the historical background of this. It's obviously the council at Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, and in verse 1, uh, Paul and Barnabas, after their first journey, have gone to report to the church what has happened and how God has opened the door to the Gentiles, and in fact, the Great Commission is being fulfilled before their very eyes. The gospel is going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so in chapter 15 and verse 1, some Judaizers showed up and said, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we've talked about this, that they were adding to the gospel. And the gospel is the one thing you cannot add to, because when you try to add to it, you take away from it. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So they left Antioch, they went there to settle this issue, but when they got there, the Judaizers were strongly and well entrenched. And in verses 4 and 5, you say, you see that they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. What they were doing was they were saying, you have to become a Jew first before you can become a Christian. You have to follow the rituals and the laws of Moses before you can be saved. You have to be a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. And Paul is saying, that's not the way it works. You come to Christ 
by grace, through faith. You know, it doesn't take long for people to bring baggage into their Christian life. I mean, they're, they're, they're excited about salvation by grace through faith. When somebody, when the light bulb comes on and they realize, I, I can't do anything to save me, I can't do anything to earn my salvation, it, it's all by grace, it's all through faith. I mean, they get excited, but after they've been in the church a little while, that, that old flesh begins to creep back in to say, you know, you really need to help God out. You know, so, so that you can make sure you're saved. You, you really need to do some things. You really need to, to add some works. And it becomes, if you will, a security blanket. I, I'm saved because I'm doing good things. Rather than I'm saved solely on the grace of God who chose to save me and opened up my eyes and my heart to my sinfulness. Because, you see, anything added to grace will soon become a requirement and a means of salvation. And you'll say, it's grace, but you also need to do this. It's grace, but you need to add this. And given time, it destroys the gospel. It, it sounds innocent at first, but these Pharisees wanted to make sure that nobody slipped by or went around Mount Sinai on their way to Mount Calvary. They didn't want people to just go to the cross. They wanted them to stop and get the law first. And Paul says the law condemns us. The law doesn't save us. And keeping the law doesn't save us. And so that's a little bit of the background. Uh, the enemy is without and within. And, the, and I think that we have Judaizers, although we don't call them that, in the church today. We have people who teach baptismal regeneration. That's not in the Bible. It's not scriptural. They can take a verse out of context they can take what uh, in the book of Acts and say it says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. But you never take a verse out of context. You always read a verse in the context of the chapter that it's in, of the book that it's in, and the total Bible that it is contained in. And you don't pull a verse out and say we build a doctrine on that verse. That is not good theology and it's not good exegesis of Scripture to build theology on isolating verses out. We don't do that on saved by grace through faith, just on Ephesians 2. Well, that's what it says. So that it's, the whole Bible teaches that. Jesus taught that. Paul taught it. Peter taught it. John taught it, that we are saved by grace through faith. The Old Testament never teaches that we are saved by keeping the law. The Old Testament gives us the law to reveal God's standard, which man knows he cannot live up to. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you know that Hebrews says that they were looking forward in faith. They were not looking at themselves and saying, look, we're keeping the law. They were looking forward in faith to a promise that God was sending their way. And so the, this enemy always works to undermine. Here's how he does it. God sows wheat and he sows tares. I mean, you know, it, it just happens. God sows unity and he sows disunity. God sends a revival and he'll send a false revival. And so Paul is trying to plant the truth in these new believers in Galatia and the Judaizers are planting error. Now Paul had warned about that. He warned uh, the people in Acts 20 about it in Ephesus. He warned Timothy about it that when I leave, there are going to be wolves that come in and they're going to try to hurt you. They're going to try to undermine what I've said to you. They're going to try to destroy you from within. So this should have come as no surprise to them because the devil always tries to discredit the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, it can't be that. 
I mean, surely I need to do something to help God out. And it says, we said in a previous message, if you do that, then God owes you salvation as a payment of a debt. If you working for your salvation gets you salvation, then God owes you salvation because it's wages due from Him. And God doesn't owe any of us anything. And so we need to understand that when the devil is working to discredit the gospel, he just doesn't do it through cults, and he just doesn't do it through false religion. Sometimes he gets inside the church and attacks the gospel of grace by adding the law to it. And so the whole future of the church rests on this question. Can a person be saved on the basis of faith in Christ alone. That is the essence of the difference in the New Testament church from every other religion on the planet. That is what distinguishes us. Can you be saved by faith alone in Christ alone? Now, the key verse is verse 4. Out of all those verses we read, the key verse is verse 4. False brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. That word false brethren means pretenders or aliens. In fact, uh, NEB translates it sham Christians. The message calls it pretending to be Christians. Philip says they are pseudo-Christians, people who pretended to be Christians. And by the way, There are people that get inside a church pretending to be something that they're not. Do you you know that? You understand that? There are people that get in that pretend to be something, but they're not really that. And and Paul says these people have been secretly brought in, and, and they say that you can earn your salvation. They've sneaked in. It's like a an illegal entry. We've got a lot of discussion in our country today about illegal immigrants. Well, these people were illegal immigrants into the church. They had never come through the cross, and they were trying to say that the gospel was something different. They had forged documents, secretly brought in. They had come in under the radar. They were not detected at first. I I remember in a church that uh, I served in Oklahoma when I was pastor there, and, and a guy came and uh, he wanted to join the church, and so I began to talk to him, and I began to ask him about, you know, what do you believe, and, and where, where's your stand theologically, and we had a discussion, and, and he told me where he was coming from, and, I, and, you know, it didn't take long for his agenda to show up, and I said, you know what? I said, you, you can't join this church. He said, this is a Baptist church. Anybody can join us. I said, no, they can't. We don't have to accept anybody that we don't want to accept. I mean, we don't have to accept you just because you want to join. You, you come to a Baptist church to believe what a Baptist church believes and to fall in line with where that church is. You don't just get to decide how it's going to be. Well, I'm going to come, and when I come, I'm going to do this. I said, well, you're not coming. He said, well, you can't stop me. I said, yes, I can. He said, I'm going to walk down the aisle Sunday morning. I said, you can stand down front by yourself till we're all gone and eating lunch, but you're not going to be presented to the church. And he sat up in the balcony that morning. And so during the invitation, I said, you know, not everybody can join a church just because they want to. Because the job of the pastor is to protect the unity of the church. And if you have an agenda of anything other than the unity of the church, and if you have a false doctrine or a false teaching that could undermine that unity, I wouldn't let you join. We were on live TV, so he knew I was not going to bluff him. And so he didn't join. You say, well, that was awfully mean of you. Why don't you have the gift of mercy? 
I do have mercy when I need it, but there's some things that you dig your heels in on. And one is somebody that's trying to secretly get into the church with an agenda other than to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That person you protect the church from. So they were trying to secretly sneak in. Now, now look at this. In Christ, I have liberty from the law as a means of salvation. When we talk about liberty, it doesn't mean license. It means I have liberty from the law as a means of salvation. Secondly, I have liberty from the law as a rule for living. In other words, I don't measure my life by keeping the law. I measure my life by living according to Jesus Christ, by the power of Christ within me. And thirdly, I am under the law of love, which means I'm willing and I want to serve because of my love for God. He says they came in to spy out our liberty in order to bring us into bondage. I love Philip's paraphrase. Philip's is not a pure translation. It's more of a a paraphrase uh, translation. Philip says, they wormed their way into our meetings to sabotage the gospel. Now, there are many commentators that believe that the Pharisees actually planted these people inside the church to try to stop this threat to their traditions because the church started out in the Jewish faith. You remember Peter and Paul were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. The church did not initially think that it would have to separate from the Jewish traditions to go worship God. They thought that they would embrace the Messiah, but they didn't. And so there began to be this split and this gap. And you remember, where did Paul go first when he went to preach? The synagogues. Why? He went to take the gospel to the Jews, to his own people. When they rejected, he opened the gospel to the Gentiles. But he didn't change his message. But these people were placed, many people believe, by the Pharisees for nothing less than a hostile takeover of the church. They wanted to get the church back and bring it into line with their rules and with their regulations. And you see this happening in a number of areas even today. You see it in in the area of sound doctrine. Somebody will... uh, just start chasing a rabbit on a particular doctrine and just go to seed on it, and that's the only thing they want to talk about. And, and, and they will want to get the Everybody in the church needs to talk about what I want to talk about. Everybody in the church needs to think what I think. Everybody in the church needs to have my doctrinal position on this, and, and the church can get split over those things. And so that's why you have to have a little room for disagreement on some doctrinal issues. There's just some things not worth fighting about. I remember Ron Dunn had a lady come up to him one time, and, and she started asking him questions. And he'd say, well, you know, this is what I believe the Bible teaches. Of course, you know, Ron was a pretty astute Bible scholar. He, you know, could preach straight out of the Greek. And so he said, you know, this is what, well, she said, I don't believe that. I don't, you know, I believe it's this. And he, she said, what about this? And he said, well, this is what I think the Bible teaches. She said, well, I don't believe that. I believe it's this. And she asked him a third thing. He said, what do you think about this? He said, lady, I agree with you. He said, if it'll make you leave me alone, I agree with you. You know, you just don't want to get in arguments and debates, and people want to argue over non-essentials. But the essentials are the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, the, the, the vicarious atonement through the blood of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, and that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Now, if you want to set a date for the second coming, knock yourself out. You're wrong to do it, but knock yourself out. Hey, if you want to get an argument over pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib, what, if you want to get an argument over that kind of, you can. And good and godly people disagree on that stuff. 
But this is not what Paul is dealing with. Paul is not dealing with non-essentials. He's dealing with the essential of the gospel. You, you can see it happen in churches all the time over doctrinal issues. Somebody gets a book, and all of a sudden that book becomes God to them, and they place that book on top of their Bible, and they begin to interpret everything through that book instead of reading the Scripture and seeing what God says in the Word. And they'll take a book written by a fallible man, and they'll say, well, this is what the truth is. The truth is in the Bible. Anything we write is an interpretation, and sometimes it's an opinion. Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes it's just an opinion. It's just our best shot, <laughs> but it's not worth fighting over. You, you see it in church politics. Uh, the, you remember these people, that, uh, commentators think that these people were placed there by the Pharisees. You know, that there are people that try to get themselves in positions in churches so that they can have power and so they can have influence, so they can decide how the church is run. Paul, in verse 4, J.B. Lightfoot says that verse 4 is a shipwreck of Greek grammar. Now, here's a brilliant man, but he is so angry and so emotional that, that he's writing and he's not even completing his sentences. He's just throwing thoughts down as fast as he can. It's almost impossible to translate, and, and it's, uh, it, it's hard to understand but, but Paul is just getting his point across. He says, I'm ticked off. <laughs> These people came in, and I'm mad about it. So anytime you think that there's not a place for holy anger and righteous indignation, just read Paul and read the prophets. <laughs> there's a time for it. Paul says, I want to tell you what ticks me off. What ticks me off is when people are trying to change the gospel of Jesus Christ. That makes me angry. And Paul is so angry, there's no flow to this verse. It's just sporadic. It's choppy. And it's, it's very hard to translate. But then you go to chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, he says, back up, taking Titus along. You say, well, why? You know, that, that's one of those phrases. You know how you, I, I know you do this because I do it. You know how you do it. You read the Bible and you see one of those things. It's got a bunch of people's names and you jump over it because you want to get to the good verse. Because, you know, there are a couple of good verses in here, but there's some of those other verses you say, that, just, that, that, that doesn't mean anything. I'll just, I'm just going to move along. Taking Titus along. Can I tell you that God never wastes words? If taking Titus along is in the Bible, it's in the Bible for a reason. Why is it there? Why was it important for Paul to say, I took Titus with me? Because Titus was a Gentile. He was not circumcised. Here's what Paul says. If you want to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ, by grace through faith in Christ alone, can change a man's life, here's Titus. He has not become a Jew to become a Christian. He's responded to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is my number one star witness that God changes the hearts of Gentiles without going through Judaism to get there. So it was his witness, it was his test case, his living proof, because what Paul is saying is, I took Titus along because if you're right, if the Judaizers are right, then Titus is not saved. I present to you Titus. Here's Titus. Now you listen to his testimony. You hear what God did in his life, and then you tell me he's not saved. Paul is saying, here's my witness. 
Here's the evidence. You may not think it can happen, but I'm telling you that by grace through faith in Christ alone, people get saved and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they're transformed by it, and they have a testimony. Here's Titus. Any questions? And so Paul took Titus along with him, and he's committed to this in verses 2 and 3. He has this private meeting with Peter, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John, and John. They are the pillars And Titus shares his testimony. He says, I submitted. That word submitted means to lay something before someone to be considered. He said, so what I did is I brought Titus up. And I said, Titus, you share with the pillars of the church. You share with the leaders of the Jerusalem church what God did in your life in Jesus Christ. And I laid Titus up in front of them. And I said, Titus, you tell them. This is for your consideration. Does God give the gospel to the Gentiles or not? So he gave him as a witness. And in that meeting, the church decided once and for all the nature of salvation. That it is grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. The issue was clear. If they sided with the Judaizers, Paul says, if I bring Titus and if I tell you what I've been doing and if I tell you what God has done on this first missionary journey and you go against me, then everything I did in starting those churches is in vain. It's been useless. Paul staked every mile he had walked, every church he had started, every life he had seen come to Christ, Paul staked it all on one thing, one man who had had a life change. He said, if if that's not the truth, then what I've done is for no purpose. It has no effect. And so Peter and Paul and James and John stand together in a united front, and it is a defining moment They said the Jews are not saved one way and Gentiles saved another way. They all come the same way. And Paul says in verse 5, he said, We did not yield, not even for an hour. We didn't even hesitate. We never backed up. We drew the line in the sand. This is the way you get saved. Now, somebody might say, well, Paul did back up at times. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I am all things to all men that I might save a few. He did say that. But let me tell you, Paul was talking about methods there, not doctrine. That's important to know. When Paul said, I become all things to all men that I might save a few, Paul was talking about methods. Paul was uncompromising on methods, uh, on doctrine, but he would compromise on methods and say, you know, I'm going to get out there and do what I need to do to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember one of the phone calls and facing the giants, and this guy called in, and and I was on a live radio thing, and he called in and he said, uh, "I heard you uh, mentioning that uh, music in that movie, that third somebody and casting something, and, and it sounds like contemporary Christian music to me." I said, "Yes, sir, it is." I said, if you, if you hear the lyrics of those songs, they exalt Christ and they honor Christ. So, well, I'll tell you, brother, you'd have done a lot better if you'd have just put Rock of Ages in there. <laughs> and I said, sir, this movie is targeted at young people. Well, you'd have done a lot better with the old songs. I thought just the death crawl, Rock of Ages, <laughs> clap for me. Let me hide 
my, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop myself in this. You know, we have people that think that we're out there compromising with the world because we're making movies. So they'd rather just curse the darkness than to throw light on it. You know, it's like D.L. Moody said, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. I mean, I'd rather be criticized for trying to do something that shares the gospel with people than sit around making excuses why we don't do anything to share the gospel with people. So, I, you know, I'd rather fall on that side of the whole issue. And so, uh, so they're, they're getting this whole issue about his methods con- confused. So Paul, uh, uh, the thing I love about Paul is Paul would adjust for the weaker brother, but he would never adjust for the false brother. He would adjust for the weaker one. And so it would have taken some time for Acts 15, this counsel to the news of God. You know, they didn't have text messages. I know that's hard for us to believe. They didn't have email. They didn't have text messages. By the way, here's a statistic that will frighten you. This group sitting over here, we're old school because we email. They text 37 times for every one time that they send an email or talk on the telephone. They send 37 text messages. That's why your phone bills are so high. They'll do 37 text messages for every one time we, we do emails. See, so we think, hey, man, we're with it. We got into this technology stuff. We got two email addresses. And they, they, they can type a text message quicker than you can get your computer on. I know, because I see them doing it during sermons. They're sitting there, you know. And so it would have taken time for this message to get to Galatia. And, and, but so what they're saying is the Judaizers saying to the apostles in Jerusalem, they're the pillars and they believe what we believe, but the message is coming down the pike. They don't believe what you believe and they're about to be discredited. You see, they were not teaching an opinion. They were not teaching an interpretation. The Judaizers were teaching the antithesis of the gospel. They were changing the message, verses 6 through 8. The same Holy Spirit energized and empowered Peter and Paul to take the gospel to two different audiences. Now, let me say something about verses 6 through 8. There are some people, including one very prominent, who will go unnamed, but he's a very prominent preacher who's on TV that some of you like, And he preaches a lot on prophecy. He believes that there's a gospel for the Jews and there's a gospel for the Gentiles. That the Jews get saved differently than we get saved. That is not what the scriptures teach. Now let me give you three reasons why it's not. Number one, Galatians 1, 6 through 9 clearly teaches there's no other gospel. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish, Arab, Chinese, Latino. doesn't matter who you are. You get saved the same way. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 clearly states there's no other gospel. That if you preach another gospel, you're accursed. Secondly, the Jerusalem council said there's only one gospel. So to preach that there's a gospel over here for the Jews and they're going to get saved in a different way, in a different style than Gentiles get saved, is to deny what Acts chapter 15 says, which is to deny the Bible. And if you deny one part of the Bible, you're going to deny another part at some point. So Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council settled that issue. Thirdly, the Greek grammar doesn't allow that option. 
the Greek grammar about salvation and these verses in the book of Galatians do not allow for the option that a Jew will get saved one way and a Gentile will be saved another way. I have met Messianic Jews who have come to Jesus Christ. Our tour guide in Israel is a converted Jew, and I'm going to tell you, he got saved the same way I got saved. He came by faith and grace in Jesus Christ. That's how he got saved. And so we're in debt to Paul and to Peter and to James and to John for drawing a line in the sand and making an unwavering commitment. Now let's look at the last thing, the truth that abides and abounds in us. Now, there's a little bit of sarcasm going on here in verses 6 and 9 uh, that these Judaizers, uh, they can't discredit Paul's message. By the way, anytime you can't discredit the message, you go after the messenger. That's a basic tool of Satan. And so he, they try to discredit Paul, and so they're using these comparison games, verses 6 and 9, recognize as important, and then he uses the word pillars. And Paul is using sarcasm here, not toward Peter, James, and John, but toward the Judaizers. These Judaizers are using the term pillars, and Paul throws it right back in their face. Paul says, yeah, pillars. Okay, you want to use the term pillars? I'll use pillars. Of course, what Paul is implying there is none of us think we're pillars. We think Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And we're not here to be the pillars of the church. We're here to preach Jesus and quit trying to use us or put words in our mouths. In fact, these four, if you take into account Peter, James, John, and Paul, these four wrote 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament, and they're all in agreement about how salvation comes. And so the devil's looking for ways to divide, and he tries to play our friends against us. That's one of the things you need to understand is the devil, if he can't get to, to your message, then he'll try to get you divided against a friend. And he'll try to bring disunity. The person will go unnamed because they're with the Lord now, but uh, back in 96, 97, uh, when we began to make some changes in music uh, to, to do more blended and a little more contemporary stuff, uh, I got a letter one day from a dear man, a godly man, a man that I loved, and I, I got a letter from him, and included in that letter were articles of Vance Havner's, where he had underlined and highlighted things that Vance Havner said about this and that and the other, and wrote me a letter that said basically that I was an embarrassment to Vance Havner uh, by what I was allowing to happen in the life of the church. And so I wrote him back. And I wrote a stern letter. I said, you need to understand something. I knew Vance Havner for 15 years, and I used the old line, you know, I knew John Kennedy, and you're, you, you don't know John Kennedy. I knew Vance Havner for 15 years, and you're trying to draw a line between me and a man that influenced me more than anybody else. And I know the intent of those articles. In fact, one of them, he and I discussed. So don't ever try to draw a line between me and Vance Havner because it ain't going to happen. He got mad at me. But you see, you know what he's doing? He didn't even realize what he's doing. He's trying to draw a line between me and the person that, that influenced my life more than anybody else. To say, oh, you're, you're moving away from what Vance Havner taught you. You're denying what Vance Havner... But listen, 
There's nobody that I ever met as a senior adult that loved young people more than Vance Havner did. Nobody. I mean, he insisted when he was in his 70s on youth nights and revivals. And can you imagine a 75-year-old man preaching a youth night? But I saw him do it. And I saw kids go up and ask to get their picture taken with him and ask to, you know, if he had signed their Bible. I saw those things happen because he loved young people. And he knew that there were things you had to do that were different from the way he was raised when he was a teenager in 1912 and 1915 that you couldn't do anymore. And he understood things were changing. And so for somebody to throw that up to me, boy, I mean, you know, just let me just say that I responded. <laughs> there was a disagreement there. And here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, well, uh, Peter and James and John, they're right, but Paul, you're wrong. And Paul says, don't you try to divide the four of us. Don't you try to get between us. You mess with me, you mess with my friends, you mess with my friends, you mess with me. That's what Paul's telling them. And so I want to give you five truths as we close, and these won't take long. Number one, you're free to live from the frustration of self-effort. These are abiding truths based on what Paul has done in the book of Galatians. You're free to live from the frustration of self-effort. That's Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. You don't have to prove yourself, folks. If this light bulb will go off in your head, it'll help you. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you have done that makes God love you less. But when it comes to the gospel, God is narrow-minded. It's Jesus only. The thing that God is narrow-minded about is the gospel. He is broad in his love. He is narrow in the path that that love walks on. But you're free from the frustration of self-effort. Secondly, you're free to live from formalism and rituals. From formalism and rituals. The whole point of him bringing Titus to Jerusalem was to say, look what grace did. Look what grace did. Uh, can I tell you a couple of things? And, and I'm not uh, mad at some of our friends. Uh, uh, I, have, I have friends that are in other denominations and other faiths. And, but, you know, I'm free from formalism and ritual. One of the things that means to me is I don't have to go through another man to pray. I don't have to go ask a preacher or a priest or a leader to pray for me because I can't pray to God. I have access to the throne of grace. It also means I don't have to go through the mother of Jesus to pray. Because the mother of Jesus had to get saved the same way I had to get saved. She was a sinner. And she had to trust Jesus, her physical son, as her spiritual savior, just like we do. I don't have to pray to dead saints to bless and intercede for me. I don't have to have anybody be baptized on my behalf. I, I don't have to get anybody to give me favor with God. God and I 
have a clear line of communication as long as I keep my life clean and confess before him. So I'm free from formalism and ritual and going through all the motions and all the things and checking all the boxes. I'm free to live within the boundaries of God's love and God's grace. I'm not free to do whatever I want to do, but I'm free to do whatever I want to do when what I want to do is what God wants me to do. That's how free I am. And God gives me a lot of rope within the boundaries of his love. You see, God's freedom is broad. It's not stoic. It's not dead. Number three, you're free to live from the fear of man, Galatians 2, 5, and 6. You don't have to be enslaved to what other people think about you. In fact, remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, it's a small thing that I am judged by you. Somebody's opinion adds nothing to you and takes nothing away from you. Uh, My favorite Bill Stafford line is, you know, if you don't like it, I'll take a half a baby aspirin and go to bed tonight. I love that line. I I just love that line. I just think, there's an old boy, he's just free. You know, what do you think everybody thought? How do you think everybody felt about that? You know, is that okay? I do all right? Hey, you're free from what people's opinions are. You know what? They may be right, they may be wrong. It doesn't matter. It's just their opinion. The only seat you're going to stand before in judgment is the judgment seat of Christ where you're going to give an account of your works in the body. And that's the only opinion you need to worry about. See, if you only do what you think everybody's going to like, then you're going to be a people pleaser, not a God pleaser. We're called to please God. If it pleases people, fine. That's great. But if it pleases God and we can go to bed at night and put our head on the pillow and say, God, I, I pray that my life today was pleasing in your sight, then it doesn't matter if anybody else understood what we were doing or not. Because the truth of the matter is you can't explain yourself to everybody. And most of the people that don't like what you did never tell you anyway. They just tell everybody else. So quit worrying about it. I'm afraid too many people spend their lives going, they love me, they love me not, they love me, they love me not, they love me, they love me not. They always get they love me not for the last flower. Number four, you're free to live above the error of fatalism. Chapter four, verses three and nine. Chapter four, verses three and nine. Paul talks about elemental things or rudimentary teachings. This would be stars and times and astrology and horoscope and fate and don't walk under a ladder and carry a rabbit's foot and don't do anything on Friday the 13th and you know don't get a, don't let a black cat cross in front of your path that's that's fatalism you know you heard about the presbyterian that uh, you know fell off a building and said man I'm glad that's over <laughs> you know sometimes if you just wouldn't walk to the edge you wouldn't fall off A lot of people live fatalistic. And see, folks, let me explain something just real quickly here. God's sovereignty does not mean fatalism. That's not what sovereignty means. It means that God oversees and overrules everything. But God's sovereignty is not fatalistic. If it was fatalistic, there'd be no purpose in evangelism. Because what will be, will be. And you just got to have the luck and the roll of the dice. That's fatalism. We're not supposed to live that way. We live by faith, not by fatalism. 
And, when we, and, and the tendency of most of us is to think negatively about God, not to think positively about him. Listen, God took all of the junk and he put it on the cross so that you could have life and have it, what? More abundantly that he can do exceedingly abundantly more than you ever hoped or imagined. That's the life God has for you. Not fatalistic, morbid introspection, but life abundantly. Even when the hiccups and the, and the potholes come in life, you move on. And you just keep going because you know that God's got a plan and a purpose and all that. So then lastly, you're free to live. Don't blow it. <laughs> Don't blow it. Chapter 4 and verse 9, turn back again. In chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Don't submit again. Can I just summarize that real quickly? Don't lose the wonder of your salvation. Don't lose the joy in the fact that God loved you enough to save you. Don't ever get over it. Don't ever get to the point where you think, wow, you know, life's just hard. Hey, life may be hard at times. But God is always good. And God always hears our prayers. And God always loves us. And God's Holy Spirit is always there to comfort us. And God's Holy Spirit is always there to stand beside us. And we're free to embrace our lives around the love of God. People will hurt you. People will disappoint you. People will let you down. But if you can get your arms around the grace and the love of God, you won't blow it. You won't turn back. You won't fall into these traps. You won't go into a ditch. By the way, the number one place that the Mormons get converts is Southern Baptist. It's the number one, number one denomination they go after, Southern Baptist. You know why they do, how they do it? One of the ways they do it is they go to people's houses on Sunday morning, and they knock on door, and most Southern Baptists are in bed on Sunday morning. So when they knock on the door, they say, oh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a Mormon. I, I'm a Southern Baptist. They so, say, well, if your faith meant anything to you, you'd be up and be at church. Our faith means something to you, to us. Why don't you let us tell you about our faith and what it means to us? And so they turn away and they walk away into false teaching because they're not immersed in the love of God. Don't let anybody destroy your freedom, your liberty. I'm not talking about license. I'm talking about liberty. Don't let anybody destroy it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. Thanks for listening and join us next week for another podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church.